Hello, and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 169. So, Parker, you got some uh, you got some stuff to tell us, right? Yeah, yeah. It's been a couple episodes since uh, we've done a Me and You podcast. Yeah, so we got some fun so, stuff. Yeah. So, I've been working more on the Pentator, so I... We brought that up when Ben was on the podcast. He's helping me do the software side and kind of the peripheral design on the Pentator. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to kind of go with the AT Sam D twenty one G eighteen A microcontroller. This is the first time I've ever done a Sam D microcontroller, so it's kind of weird because I'm used to like MSP four thirties and in um uh. What's the other one? The, uh, um, the um, Silicon Labs. Silicon Labs. Um, the the Sleepy Bees. Um, the propeller. I'm used to those. <laughs> and like the Parallax propeller. Yeah. Um, so I never really dealt too much with Sam D's before. I've done a lot of PIC32 stuff. What's interesting is you can use a 32.768 kilohertz clock like you would use for like a real-time clock. Uh-huh. That's its system clock. And then it has like a PLL that boosts it to, or I guess that boosts is the wrong term. It uh, accelerates the clock to 80 <laughs> megahertz. Phase locks it <laughs> a gazillion times yeah. up to 80. Me- it, it's kind of crazy because, like, I, I mean, there's plenty of, of uh, processors that run on that, or they have options for an RTC like that. But I haven't seen it before where they use that as the main clock. Yeah, the um the sleepy bees from Silicon Labs can, but they only go to like twenty megahertz on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this thing's going to eighty megahertz on that clock, which I guess it's it's only four times more, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every time that this little crystal clicks, a whole bunch of stuff has to happen, right? Yes, many more times faster than it clicks. Yeah, that that's the whole point. Have you ever yes. looked at uh, phase lock loop stuff? And, and I have not. That's a black magic art for me. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's really weird. I I've I've only looked at it enough to like answer the question like what is a phase lock loop? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know that. Uh, oh, we should have someone on the podcast come on and talk about phase lock loops. Yeah, that would be, be great. invigorating. Yeah, <laughs> it starts with hello. <laughs> this is you. So what's a phase lock loop? Just like break right yeah, that's the first question just, just, just that's it and then like answer that and that's it <laughs> so whenever oh how about we should actually come up with a list of questions that are like that that ask electrical engineers when they come on oh yeah but they have to be like super hard questions well yeah like what is a phase lock loop like yeah. or implement phase lock loop in fpga like it like bullshit like interview questions that you would get asked yeah yeah huh <laughs> And that's always the first question, and they immediately leave the hangout session. Yeah, just like that's it. You're on your own for this one. <laughs> yeah, we we have a product at work that uh, uses uh, multiple phase lock loops, so I've I've you know looked into it, and it's a it's an oscillator that that is different from many other oscillators, as in like one oscillator controls another via phase lock looping, kind of thing. So, um, but in terms of so, like, on, on low-frequency stuff, they're a little bit, I guess, easier to understand. But on this, like, how do you get 32 kilohertz to ring up to 80 kilohertz, you know, effectively? Mm-hmm. That's, I don't know. 80 megahertz. Uh, 
Oh, did I say kilohertz? Yeah, megahertz. Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it has to go fast. Yeah, got to go fast. Got to go fast. <laughs> <laughs> and cool. so, yeah, and one of the big things with this um, Penetor is trying to reduce the cost of the Pinhex system. Yeah. Because we, we, we did a pretty good job at lowering the cost of the Pinhex system, but we want to take it a step further and, and reducing the cost. So it's like, you know, going with a cheaper microcontroller. And so, so instead of like the $10 PIC32, we're going down to, you know, a $3 SAMD chip. And how we're... So the difference between the PIC32 and the SAMD is they're about the same speed, but the SAMD is a lot smaller die, and it's got less I.O. And on the PIC32, we use, like, all the I.O. So it has, like, 100 GPIO. Mm. So to get around that, we're using some, um, like, I.O. expanders that are SPI addressable. And that way we can expand how much I.O. We, we, we can have so we can interface with, like, all the solenoids, uh, the solenoid MOSFETs and all the um, switches and that kind of stuff. So, and, so with, the, with it being all on SPI, uh, do you have any kind of – have you had to put any thought into how fast you address things? Or are you putting, like, faster things on GPIO and slower things on the SPI expander? Not – we don't really have to worry about that too much because like pinball our old pinball kernel on the pin heck ran at like a thousand Hertz, which is plenty fast for, you know, human interaction. Yeah. But you know, the pick 32 is running at 80 megahertz. So a thousand Hertz is like nothing. So it's doing all the background stuff, managing all the, um, you know, DMA and all the, uh, all the, um, game management stuff. And then it just handles the IO stuff at, uh, you know, hundred megahertz. Right. At hundred megahertz, a thousand hertz. Yeah, hundred megahertz would be insane. <laughs> um, and so, basically, we're going to run the spy at kind of like the fastest it can go, and not really worry about it. It's basically like, eh, we'll get to it, basically, because we're running the the kernel at a hundred hertz. Uh, man, I'm going bad <laughs> at that. Thousand hertz. So we don't really have to worry about that too much. Sure. Yeah. Um, Do you know what your spy write speed is? Not, not right now. Okay. It's up there, uh, right? Yeah, well, we haven't gotten that far yet, but it's going to be fast enough. We did some calculations, mainly on, like, the lights. Yeah. Because we are um, we're doing serial lights, and so we calculated, like, how fast we can drive those that serial light string. Right. We're like, okay, we have to drive it for this amount of time, and you have to make sure, you know, you, you keep all your clocks synced and all that stuff. And so you're filling up that buffer and stuff like that. And we basically made sure running serial lights wouldn't interfere with like normal, you know, game management and it won't. Got it. Yeah. Yep. And the big thing with the Pinotar from the Pinhack is reducing like voltage rails because the Pinhack had 12 volts, 50 volts, 5 volts, 3.3 volts, and then ground, right? And so it was a six layer board. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a lot of that's a lot of expense in just regulation, right? Yeah, yeah, and so the big thing with the what I want to do with the Pintor is reduce how many voltage rails we're using like on the board to just three point three volts. So sure, we'll have to have fifty volts for like the solenoids, and we'll have to have higher voltage like five volts for all the external like lights, and and we're doing serial switches, so we have to send five volts down for those too. But those are just on the I/O, the peripheral, right? So you just run a big fat trace to it on one layer. So you don't have to have it, its own internal plane layer taking up, you know, 
your your stack up. And so we're hoping to get down to basically a four layer board. So we'll have signal, ground, three point three volts signal again. Yeah. Or we can be jerks and like do three point three volts on top and then signals inside and then ground. So no one could see the traces, or yeah. you can never repair it. Yeah, but you could say it's it's there for shielding, right? Yeah, it's there for shielding. Yeah, yeah like like a pinball controller needs that, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's on a big steel backplane, so yeah, it's got all the shielding it needs. Right, right. Uh, so on the pin hex system, you had mounting holes, and you used PEM studs uh, to kind of mount it to like a little bracket. Are you going to do something similar to that on this one? Yeah, we're probably going to get off of pen studs because the machine shop that we used for that didn't like pen studs because you have to pay for the pen stud tooling, and they didn't like that. Yeah, there's like an anvil um, and stuff you have to buy for it. Yeah, yeah, and personally, I was like, we built enough of these. It's the cost of it wasn't an issue, but it shouldn't be. No. It shouldn't be, but it was. Um, we'll probably figure something else out. Um, but I'd like to have a – I'm basically looking – so, like, when we sell the Pinotaur to people, like, the because this is not to sell – we'll probably sell it to individual, like, hobbyists and stuff, but it's it's designed to be sold to, like, spooky pinball, like, small pinball manufacturers that are going to be buying, like, a 1,000 of these a year. Right. And so we'll probably sell it with the backplane this time. And so instead of just, like, a specification of what the backplane is, you buy it and it's already attached to the backplane. So you just – Put it in the back box just to reduce like board flex and shipment and a bunch of other issues that pop up when you when you try to ship a ginormous board that's got through hole components that poke out and so you start stacking them into a box and they start flexing and yeah it gets nasty sure so so the back plane does that just screw into the wall of the uh the yeah they just take like self tapping screws and just rip it right into the plywood <laughs> Uh, so wait, special about are, it. are pinball uh, enclosures made out of plywood, or or I, I would have thought they would have been made of like MDO or something like that. It's it's MDO, oh, which okay. is plywood. It, yeah, it's just glue and sawdust. Oh, that's MDF. Uh, isn't MDO the uh, the MDO is what they make signs out of, which is plywood with with it's waterproof plywood with paper on it. Oh, that's yeah, that's the one that has veneers on on either side, right? So it's real smooth. It can be veneer, but most of the time it's paper actually. It's a sheet of paper on it. Oh, okay. So it's very smooth and it's waterproof. Got it. I actually built the back like my I have a, like a drawer system in the back of the Jeep. I made it at MDO cuz it's waterproof and you can glue like carpet to it really well. Huh. Okay, cool. So um, and then for the voltage drills, because I want to like simplify like what you what voltage you apply to the board, because uh, like the old system, the pin heck, you had to give it twelve volts and five volts, and so you kind of had to have like a multi rail power supply to handle it, and those are kind of expensive. Mm. And so I'm hoping to get to just supplying. You just give it twelve volts and fifty volts, because you have to give it. We like I like to separate out the fifty volt supply from the twelve volt supply. Um, it kind of makes it a lot easier to handle, like, crosstalk between the solenoids and the low logic system. Right, because the only, really the only way that the 50-volt uh, interacts with any of the other things is through switches, right? Through MOSFETs. Yeah, through MOSFETs. And so the 50, how they're connected on the pin heck is we had a small ferrite bead 
that connected the grounds together. So, so your, your potential was the same on the grounds, but any kind of noise was suppressed through the ground plane. Oh, really? Did you find you had to do, uh, you needed that? No. Well, we never tr experimented with just like putting a trace there or anything, but it worked. Oh, so okay. We're like, eh, okay. So it worked yeah, really well. Slap we it never, in and we, it yeah, okay. Yeah, we never had issues with it, so we just said, okay, we'll just run that. Yeah, leave it. <laughs> Got it. Because <laughs> um, that's technically the correct way to do it, in quotes. Is there? Yeah, I got it. It's like treating, it's like if you had a really noisy, like, digital plane, and then a quiet analog section. Yeah. You don't really kind of want to connect them together, but you need them to be referenced the same. So putting something that will kind of suppress spikes and stuff is kind of what you need. Hmm. Yeah, got so it. So a little ferret bead kind of works. I guess you could technically put a trace there or like two pads and then figure out what frequencies you need to suppress. And then put the correct ferret bead there. But I was like, eh, throw a hundred, like, a, oh, was it? Uh, it's one of the part number I use for um, USB shielding to ground on most of my designs. It's like a hundred megahertz ferret bead, I think, or something like that. Got it. So. Yeah, I mean, so effectively you're star grounding with a varite bead in the path. Yeah, in between. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Cool. And seems to work pretty well. And so for the Pinotor system, we kind of want to move to like serial switches and lights to kind of simplify wiring. That's one of the other areas that you can like save costs when building pinball machines. The... Um, most of the, your money and labor is put into like attaching the wiring harness to like all the solenoids and all the switches and stuff. And like, cause you have to hand solder all that. Mm -hmm. There's not a machine that can do that. Yeah. They have and like all the big harnesses. jigs for like flipping over like the play field yeah. and, and like people spend, I watched one documentary where people spend like multiple days on a single play field. Like one person is dedicated to a play field. Yeah. It takes, Stern Pinball, which is the largest pinball company in existence right now, it takes longer to build and stuff a playfield than it does Ford to build a car from start to finish. <laughs> yeah. That's how much that's it, it, I think it's more of a testament of like how much labor savings like giant robots have. Well, but uh, that also, build so it begs the question, is Stern really, really, really inefficient or is Ford really, really, really efficient? Like, I think it's, I think pinball machines are just really inefficient to build yeah. currently. Yeah, sure. And so what we want to do is make it faster. So we want to build serial switches. So you just have to plug cables into each one. Yeah. Right. And so I started looking at like serial LEDs, these smart LEDs like the WS the WS twenty eight twelve Bs. The problem with those smart LEDs is they can't reflow at all at lead free temps. Right, like yeah. their max temperature is like two thirty five C. Uh, you reflow them, and then they basically their lenses crack, mm -hmm. and lenses crack, and then the the gold bonds pull off their the dye. Yeah, and it's and so you, they fail. Yeah, and we we've talked about these all the time on the podcast, and they have like a. 30 to 40% failure rate in lead-free reflow, which yeah. kind of sucks. Because I remember I, there was a really good picture on one of the previous podcasts of me wearing, like, a welding helmet, replacing these LEDs and testing them. So I was wearing the welding helmet to protect my eyes from how bright they were. Yeah, so I was just, they, like, looking at them. When, when you turn them on full bright white, they're just unbelievable. Like, 
you did oh, it's like blind. staring at the it's like it's staring at an eclipse <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're ridiculous right i i remember i remember you just sitting at the bench for hours upon hours replacing those i don't I remember what like the product 3, was or something like that but wasn't it wasn't it like an array of these lights and like yeah inside the array like two or three of them were out oh, and the thing is since they're serial you had to replace the first one in the chain that was bad. Mm-hmm. So you'd fix that one, clean the board, wash it, dry it, test it again, and then there'd be another one in the chain dead. <laughs> do the whole process over again. So you'd do it like them I in batches. So you'd place one and do a whole batch, wash them all. Right. Yeah. But it was not fun. That was you know, an entire week of my life was replacing 3,000 LEDs. Yeah. That sucks. <laughs> and then we... Basically, after that, we put a blanket statement of, like, we're not doing these LEDs ever again in production for people. Right. But, but, so I started doing more research in these le- in these smart LEDs. Actually going to the original, like, manufacturers, like, APA Electronics. And I started looking through their catalog. I'm like, okay, it's been, like, five years since that incident. They've had to have, like found their way and started making like a lead free <laughs> version that can like reflow at like 250 or higher Celsius. Right. And they have according to the data sheet at least. Yeah. And so the APA 102 C 5050 256 can reflow at 256 degrees Celsius. Go figure. Go figure. And then they also have the APA 104 260 5050 which reflows at 260 degrees Celsius. And so one of those uses like the single wire WS2812 method of communication and the other one uses data clock. I can't remember which one's which. So My, it makes it makes you wonder nowadays like why would any manufacturer make a a surface mount product that can't handle the industry standard? Like I, I don't I, know. I, it, it's really curious, and and it's not like it's not an isolated event. Like, look all over the internet for WS twenty eight twelve, and all you get is these are really cool, but you know you can't use them. Yeah, if you if you Google like WS twenty eight twelve lead free reflow, <laughs> everyone just like no. <laughs> yeah, just don't even try. Everyone's had the same results. Yeah, yeah, it's they're pretty bad. Um, but so I contacted the their sales rep here in America about them. And I'm like, hey, so what's the deal with these parts? Um, the data sheet says we can reflow them. And they're like, yeah, these are actually kind of new. And so what, what they happened was a, a I, I guess it, the guy told me a big enough customer came in and ordered enough of them and told them we have to reflow these at lead-free reflow specs. And so they changed their entire product line to be lead-free reflow compatible. <laughs> That one company, okay, so first of all, that one company is the biggest order they've ever had, so they make a bunch of money, and now they're going to uh, have a lead-free process. So, I mean, that one company is their savior in a way, you know? Kind of, I guess. At least for, they're the savior of other people using these LEDs. Well, okay, so we also talked about it in the, gosh, a long time ago, but weren't we saying that uh, using a vapor phase technology, these could have been soldered properly? With lead-free, correct, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, okay, so th- there is a industry standard way that you could use them. You just have to find a CM that has a vapor phase oven. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, But uh, you're not talking mass volume there, so. 
No, because isn't Vapor Face kind of slow? It's Batch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. It's not like it's not a conveyor style reflow. It is you put them in there for you know fifteen minutes or however long your reflow profile is, and well, fifteen minutes is way long, so six minutes. But um, yeah, it's not a continual stream. So yeah. you got to put them in, cool down, pull them out, etc. You guys have a Heller seventeen something. Yeah, something like that. Seventeen. It's one of the big guys. I I I reprofiled ours just not that long ago. In fact, we did some reprofiling uh, today actually, just to uh, we had some boards that have some pretty tall electrolytics on them, and uh, the electro it's it's interesting because the electrolytics de- depending on the direction that the boards went in the oven, they either uh, soldered well or had some issues, and it's it was due to the fact that you have hot air blowing on it and those electrolytics were actually shielding their pads if they were going in one direction so so in other words kind of hot tip from the mac for engineering podcast <laughs> if you if you have a say a line of electrolytics you want to try to panelize the board such that the electrolytics are in a line that is uh parallel with the conveyor belt such that the hot air can flow around the electrolytics as opposed to them being like a shield in a way yeah so like one side gets reflowed and the other in the in the trailing side does not yeah you have like a heat shadow in a way uh from the electrolytics and and the and the thing is you can actually get uh like any passives that are in that heat shadow gotta watch out for that so yeah Interesting. Yeah. I actually never really thought about that, but I never designed anything with really tall electrolytics yet. So. Well, and it, and if it's one electrolytic, it's one thing. But if you have like four or five in a, in a straight line and they're all, you know, what, if they're all like five times taller than a 0603, there's a good chance that, first of all, the electrolytics pad won't solder, but maybe also anything close by. So keep an mm-hmm. eye out for that. But so in that I, kind I of ordered, situation, you can just crank the oven. <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. But you run into other issues sometimes with right. that. So I ordered two reels, one of each of those. And so when they arrive, I'll do some testing. Um, I basically, I'll put them in my inventory at Macrofab and then have the production team just make some test boards and then test them and see how well it'll work. And if I get a 100% yield, then... You know, I'm thinking about making these house parts for Macrofab, which would be pretty nice for... Because I think one of them is a drop-in replacement for WS2812s. Nice. Which would be nice. Yeah. I actually had a customer just ask me the other day about this part number. And and the thing is, I didn't recognize the part number. All I re- all I did was I pulled up the data sheet and I saw that LED and I was like, no, 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 no. You're no, like, no, oh, no, hell no. No. And he was like, but it says <laughs> lead-free temperature. He's like, look at the temperature. I'm like... I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll have to find out. Was it like SK something something? I don't remember off the top of my There's head. There's some of them that say like they do 250, but they can't. <laughs> they just lie on the data sheet. Yeah. But that, I made sure first, I talked right? a lot with the sales rep, and he's like, these can do lead-free 260. So we shall see. Nice. So APA Electronic, you're going to be on the hook for this one. <laughs> All our listeners will know. Hey, um, and then actually at the fab, we got some new equipment. Um, we got a Micronic My 300 and a Micronic uh, My 700. So the 300s are new pick and place. 
And they're working on getting that. I think it's actually placing parts already this week. Or last week, actually. And so the big thing over that, our old one was the My 200. It's basically twice as wide. And it has a larger multi-pick head, which is cool. So it goes a little bit faster. And it's quieter. So they got some new maglev technology in it or something. Huh. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I, I think the coolest feature is it's got a... Um, it's got electrical verification now. And so what that enables you to do is when you build the tooling for the machine, the, the program, uh, you say like, hey, the part that goes on, on R1 is a 10K resistor with this tolerance. Because we already have that information. Um, and so, yeah, that's all fine. And so people will load the the reel into the clip, which is what they call the feeder on the Micronic, and then you put it in. And the clip says, hey, I'm a 10K. But the clip doesn't actually know it's a 10K. It only knows it's a 10K because a human told it it was. Right. And so you, you're, refer- you're basically banking on the fact that a human put a 10K resistor reel into the clip. Right. And so what this does is gives another... Like, we have some checks and verifications for that. But, you know, stuff still happens. And so this gives us another level of just in case. You know, just right. in case someone actually loaded a 100K in there or a 1K or whatever into that machine. Or it could actually find, hey, this is supposed to be a 1% part, but this is actually a 5% part. Oh, it'll check tolerance. It'll check tolerances, too. That's really cool. Will, yeah. will, will it check uh, capacitance also? I think it does as well. I think it does capacitance and diode. Oh, so so it'll tell you if you're placing it uh, the wrong way? Yeah. Which which is nice. Which it, it's rare, but it does happen occasionally that a, uh, a polarized component can be flipped inside of the tape. I've, I've actually we've received parts in tubes from like DigiKey and Mauser. Parts backwards. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot so. of times they're they're tubed and reeled by Mauser or whatnot, and so that's another level of a mistake could be made. Yeah, exactly. So, if, and I've seen actually parts jump in the tape, mm-hmm. and so like because you only, you have a couple components exposed in in the clip, and so when it moves forward, a part can jump and then kind of just like rotate around. So I've seen actually, I've seen diodes flip backwards. Oh yeah, because yeah, of that for sure. And it's insane to think about that that can happen, but yeah, it does happen. Oh, which absolutely. is why it's why manufacturing is never a hundred percent yield, no matter what. And you should it's like and, stuff and like that. Yeah, if you're happens. making something, you shouldn't expect a hundred percent yield. I mean, yes. if if you're asking for one, then maybe. <laughs> I would say if you're asking for one, you should be expecting a hundred percent yield. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Low volume, yeah, you should be expecting 100% yield. But for high volume stuff, stuff like that, just like there's like a percent chance something will happen. And so, it, you know, you will get one that that happens on. Yeah. I've actually seen an SOIC 8 flip upside down in tape uh, just from the tape being advanced a slot. Dang. Um, I saw it once, but it, it, it has happened. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of crazy. And then we got a uh, My 700, which... They were working on the the Micronic guys were there this week to set that machine up, which is our new upgraded pace jet machine. So it'll be able to do smaller dot sizes for parts, and it's dual head, so it's faster. Yeah, oh, nice. So that's gonna be cool. 
So the my two hundred and the my five hundred. It was a five hundred year old paste jet, right? Yeah. So we still have those machines, and they're yeah. still running. What what are, what are those going to be dedicated for? Uh, they will be dedicated to our ten day prototypes class. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So the, your yeah, faster so stuff goes on one line, and production ish stuff goes on the other line. Yeah, low volume production ish stuff will go there. Cool. Yeah. And the crazy thing is, when you look at the My 500 through the 700, it lost weight. <laughs> yeah. Because if you remember the 500, it was the 500 is such an insane machine when they like when you look at it. It's bulky. The chassis is made out of granite. Yeah, because that thing holds ass. Uh, so it and needs so, to be really stable, really heavy and stable. But the 700 looks like a normal like stencil machine. Huh? Really? So like. Yeah, so the 500 looks like nothing else in, like, SMT machinery. But the 700 looks just like a stencil printer would look like. Yeah. And it's not made out of granite. It's really, it is really heavy. Yeah. But I haven't dug into it yet. So I'm like, how do they make it that heavy? I'm going to guess, like, it has lead bricks underneath it. (laughs) Or it's made out of, has concrete blocks underneath it. Because for some reason, because it's just like a sheet metal outside, like a normal machine would be. Oh yeah, the My Five Hundred had like a like a a really thick exterior, like it was beefy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't remember who, what the name. Uh, heavy, heavy robotics. We had them on a year and a half ago, two years ago, uh, and uh, we were talking about uh, their robotic arm offerings. And I remember something that they mentioned about like CNC and motion, and you could pick accuracy and stiffness and rigidity. As like those are those are like knobs you the can three tweak. knobs you can play with yeah yeah the knobs you can tweak it always felt like the my five hundred just tweaked all three knobs up you're like yes it's rigid as hell it's unbelievably accurate and it's really fast but and, I, I guess I guess the one knob that they didn't tweak is how much it costs right yeah <laughs> how much it costs to manufacture right. Yeah. So the the 500 was the first generation of that kind of paste jet machine. So the 700 is actually the third generation. So we skipped ah, the 600. Got it. And so I think basically I I think with the 500 they didn't really know how to design it, and so they kind of desi- they did what they you said they cranked all the knobs and made sure it worked, and so they could actually sell the technology. And now they're worked. backing it off. And they're, now they're tweaking it and say, okay, now we need to make money. So let's, let's optimize all that stuff. Yeah. Maybe it doesn't need to have, you know, a granite exterior. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, it's heavy as hell. And when your paste jetter costs more than your pick and place, or I shouldn't yeah. say paste jetter, when your paste application device. Uh, let, let, let's put it this way. the, the uh, One of the de- paste machines we use at work i think was 20k whereas a pace jetter is 10x that you know so like you yeah can, it gets you up can, there yeah. you can get the job done for a lot less money yeah right. yeah the problem is stencils start eating up your your r uh your um um nres oh of course so. yeah yeah and with the way that you guys manufacture stuff stencils would be awful you you'd be you'd be having five or six stencils arrive every day and they're only used for that day it'd be like four times that number but yeah <laughs> yeah probably yeah yeah yeah, yeah. we have really. like 
I think at the moment we have like 30 or 40 different panels show up every day right now. That's crazy. That's different panels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's nuts. insane how many different kind of jobs we run on, on those machines. So yeah. I'm so glad we have new machines now. So it's based. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the the lead times and stuff to cart to you know drop down. Yeah, and that's the goal, right? To get ten day less than ten day. Yes. Don't you tell heard it. You that. heard it here first. <laughs> 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 that's not that's not really a new secret. That's been Macrofab's thing for like ever, ever. Yep. Yeah. Faster, faster, faster. Right, right. And be affordable. Ish. So. Ish. <laughs> We're pretty good for our US manufacturing, I would say. Oh, you're you're in the middle. Yeah. yeah. Like you you you're not trying to be the cheapest guy and you're not like just obscenely expensive. You're just Yep. So, that's that. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, Steven. So, uh, I've been uh, working a bit on the macro amp, which we talked about the last time we had a you and I podcast. And that's like uh, the second oldest MacFab podcast projects, or like at least top five. It's yeah, it's, up it's, there. it's way up there. Actually, okay, so it's it's interesting because uh, Parker and I were talking about this just the other day. Um, we we dog on the SSPS all the time, the super simple or super stupid power supply. Uh, we, we 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 dog on that as like this like huge unfinished project and our first one in the first episode and stuff like that. I actually, so I started digging into it the other day because I was actually thinking about redesigning um, some chunks of it. And I, maybe I didn't even remember this, but, like, the last place we left it, was it working? Like, we left it yeah, as it, it was functioning. Like, it was totally yeah. functioning. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the core of it was the Energon cube. Right, and, right, right. And that function, like, we have video of it working. I have an entire blog post I wrote where the end of the blog post was, like, here is the thing functioning. All we need to do now is kind of like continue to validate it and then put put it all together. And yeah. that's where we left it. Like I'm, my mind, like I've tricked myself with how many times we've talked about this thing where I'm like, ha, that thing's like not even functioning. No, like it, it straight up works. <laughs> yeah, it straight up works. It works fine. Yeah. Although uh, Parker and I were talking about um, potentially – looking at it in a different manner and and considering some different topologies because even though it worked like there's there's probably some better ways of doing it uh it so. is not the most efficient machine uh it it might actually be a runner for one of the most inefficient <laughs> yeah it's I, I would think we should change the name the super simple entropy machine Mm, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. And it, and, and it just gets worse as it gets older, right? Yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I know that was a tangent and whatnot, but it was it was worth bringing up that, like, no, we were we actually almost finished that project. It's it's way further along than I thought it was. So uh, but the macro ramp. Yeah. So uh, the macro ramp was a, a new tube amplifier that I've been designing for a long time. Um, and I, I got the boards made, but I had never actually just tested them. Like, literally, they were built, just never applied power. And uh, just a while ago, I installed some new tubes in it and uh, put in the JFETs that, that that I just had in a bag. Like, those were the last things to solder in. Uh, so I soldered those in and fired it up, and lo and behold, everything functioned, um, everything asterisk, because one of the JFETs was actually bad. It's just DOA. Uh, which kind of sucked, but 
and in fact, I thought it was one of the new tubes that was bad, like from the get go. So I huh. I clipped out the new tube and replaced it with another one, uh, and it still was bad. And I was like, oh well, I guess I just wasted a new tube. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I found out that a JFET was bad, which you know that those three like those TO ninety two style transistors, like I never had a bad one before. A, a brand new bad one, I should say, but I guess there's a first for everything. Uh, but yeah, so, so I got the, uh, I fired it up. Everything seems to function well. Uh, I've got way, way more gain on tap than I actually need. And in the preamp itself, I don't have uh, any attenuation control, like like a volume control. The uh, well it, within the structure of the preamp, the really the idea is to have the. Uh, attenuation control at the front end of the preamp. So the preamp is always basically running full bore. It's just you choke mm-hmm. off what gets sent to it. So right now, I followed the general structure that was set forth in the data sheet for the new tubes. And uh, just the way that it turned out, I got 42 times gain in this preamp. And 42 is a lot if you think about the fact that I've already got it set up for line level input. Uh, mm-hmm. So 42 is way more than enough to drive the power amp to like saturation and beyond, you know, way, (laughs) way, way beyond. So what's a normal gain for line level to like a power amp? What's a normal gain you'd be looking at? So that depends on a ton of factors, but in general, I would say somewhere in the 10 to 12 X range, because uh, for, for this style of amplifier, they, the, the power amp will distort somewhere in the 10 to 12 volt input range uh maybe a little bit more but i would i would probably leave it about there and that's you know with a 10 volt input to the power amp a 10 volt rms i'm gonna get the full you know 12 to 20 watt output so with 42 times gain it's just gonna be like an awful mess uh, so I the good thing is gain is easy to get rid of. It's a lot harder to increase. So I just need to chop off some gain somewhere. Uh, in other mm-hmm. words, probably just increase some resistor values here or there. Uh, so that that all worked out well. Um, I did have some other component values that I realized that I had uh, just some bad values on. Uh, there's a power supply resistor that I chose to be 2K. And... Um, that that would be a totally fine resistor value. It's a two k three watt, and um, but I realized That's a that beefy guy. Yeah, because I'm I'm dropping some juice through it, but I but I realized that I pretty heavily miscalculated how much current is flowing through that resistor. <laughs> <laughs> so that resistor is supposed to drop somewhere in the vicinity of a few volts, but it's dropping like twenty to thirty right now. Uh, so I I. Re- I Basically, what happened is all of those JFETs I was talking about, they're JFET. JFET follows the same convention as a MOSFET, right? You have source drain and uh, gate, right? I would say yes. I uh, yeah, I, I don't think, mess with JFET, so, so so the these are N channels, so that means the source. So the, I have them set up as a buffer. So the source mm-hmm. is spitting out to a resistor that goes to ground, and I set that resistor to ground far lower than needed i think i have it at 10k or something like that but you have six of them and you have 30 some odd volts on that 10k resistor so at you know 
follow whatever current that is and then multiply it by six and then multiply that by the 2k power resistor and you start dropping a ton of juice so in other words all of those 10ks in my buffer circuits i just i can arbitrarily boost them to 100k or 220 or something high it doesn't frankly it doesn't really even matter that much i just need some juice flowing through the jfet i don't want it to just be like micro amps but you know it doesn't need to be five milliamps per per buffer yeah. like that's just way too much juice so uh basically i need to update that and then um and then i should have everything working pretty so well. you're going to change the the power supply resistor or you're going to change the jfet like loaders both okay. uh I'll, I'll start with by changing the loaders and then see where i sit and then if i uh and then i'll probably have to bump that 2k resistor down a little bit to just get a usable headroom um, mm -hmm. and that. So that's all good. Uh, and then I had originally designed in an RIAA filter, uh, the RIA filter, which is basically the, um, uh, the reverse. That's like the inverse of what they cut a record at. That's right? right, yeah. So I haven't had a chance yet to actually test if that filter is doing what it needs to. However, I have put a signal into it, and I'm totally getting signal out of it. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. so in other, in other words, like it's functioning. I just don't know if the poles are where they need to be. The way so I'm going to test it is I'm going to put a record through it and see if it sounds okay. I was about to say is I actually, I have a, a test record that has certain frequencies on it. No lie. Yeah, I do. So we, I can bring that up to Colorado and we can pop it on a, your record and then make sure we get like a kilohertz out. Oh, nice. Yeah. 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 I like that. That's, that's great. Uh, you know, I, I looked it up once. Reference microphones on um, Amazon, they're not that expensive, actually. Uh, so they're not intended to sound good. They're intended to be a reference. They're intended to be like, you know, when it detects this SPL at this frequency, it's that SPL at that frequency. So it would be really fun to uh, measure one meter from a speaker because that's usually the standard and then see if we're getting that. Uh, so we could... You know, totally of course, of course, we'll have to have a couple of beers before we do that. But <laughs> so, so the data will be, you know, accurate. Only as good as how many beers <laughs> <laughs> within three beers of accuracy. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, I like that. In fact, uh, so have you have you heard of the uh, gosh? What are they called? Um, it's escaping me now. Uh, they're called audio exciters. They're called audio exciters. Uh, they're seven. Is that what you call the front row at a concert? Yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's groupies. Never mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so these audio exciters, think of a speaker without the cone. So it's just... It's, okay, it's the coil that moves a magnet? It's a coil that moves a magnet. Yeah, okay. exactly. So these things are available on, uh, I believe the website is Parts Express, but you can probably get them on Amazon too. Uh, they're like 17 bucks. And basically what it is, is it's just a vibration motor, effectively, that that okay. is tuned or has an impedance that works with the amplifier output so like eight ohms uh there's some there's some information available on youtube and a handful of other sites where you can basically take these audio exciters and stick them to things and just turn anything into a speaker uh i've seen this yeah. they're really really freaking cool Especially because, like, you can try different materials and you can try different locations on the material and different XY sizes and thicknesses, and you can tune your speakers by like cutting them effectively. Uh, so, I, my my idea right now is after I build 
and finish the macro amp, I kind of want to make some foam speakers with these audio exciters and make a real like goofy wanky looking record uh like amp space in my basement where it's like this is my audio area where i have like these really goofy hi-fi speakers that are made of pink foam <laughs> pink foam <laughs> the cheapest material at home depot exactly yes exactly <laughs> so so maybe that's something we'll have to play with when you uh, when you get up here you know i actually think it would be really cool if you made a false wall yeah that was the whole wall was the speaker. Yeah, I, so that would be pretty sweet. I've seen some people do that, and it's and it's pretty cool. The thing that I want to do that I think is super wanky. It's like way beyond, and I love this. Uh, you use magnet wire to connect to the audio transducer, the audio exciter. So magnet mm-hmm. wire is what carries your signal, but you also hang the speaker from the ceiling by the actual signal wires. So it's suspended in space and it's basically held by nothing other than the signal wires itself. Mm-hmm. How, how wanky is that? You know, just like zero gravity speakers hanging in space, zero gravity speakers for the, for the most perfect audio. coming to a Kickstarter near you. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's just a spool of wire and pink foam, pink foam, <laughs> <laughs> zero G speakers. Hey, I bet you if we used, white like gloss white foam it would sell billions oh all the apple people would buy it yeah, yeah. it would be called the the it was, was it the um what was the name of it the floating speaker the zero g speaker yeah i zero speaker. oh yeah lowercase i right. yeah lowercase uppercase I. I would just be that would be dumb no yeah, no, one, dumb. no one would buy it yeah i can just spray paint them white does that work sure I get well. You can't spray paint foam, can you? <laughs> no, I would eat it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, so yeah. The the the, the, the macro amp, uh, it's functioning. I've got the enclosure all drilled out. I'm just gonna kind of slap everything in there and start wiring it up. Um, so one of the other things I've I kind of been hammering on is is an amp that I've. Frankly, this is the third time I've built this amp, and I don't mean like three different amps. This is the third time I've built this specific one like chop it apart rebuild it um, it's like the johnny cash song which one i'm not a johnny cash uh dude. cadillac by parts or something like that no uh, you know i heard that i heard he he uh had 1500 individual like unique songs like that's insane absolutely like hits no like uh, it was called one piece at a time it's a he works at like a cadillac like plant and he takes a piece at a time to build his own cadillac (laughs) he steals a cadillac one piece at a time basically yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i was thinking that amp is like my jeep oh yeah because you've been up and down building it it, like rebuild it every three years (laughs) yeah well and and so the thing is like i had no intent of actually rebuilding this amp and in fact (laughs) Before I rebuilt this entirely, I actually serviced the amp and got it up to like full functioning capability. And then I was like, I literally just got out clippers one day and I was like, just nope, we're doing we're doing this. And I just chopped it all apart. Uh, but so what's still original? The transformers. Like the I was about to say the knobs. No, no, <laughs> the chassis is entirely different. Uh, the wire. No, nothing. They're just the transformers. And the reason why is because I spent five hundred dollars on the transformers twelve years ago. Uh, but and like, 
but although I did take all the Transformers apart and I and I repainted them, I got I like took all the rust off of them and they they look gorgeous now. Uh, but but actually, I would know, say that that amplifier is less the original amplifier than my Jeep actually is though. Oh yeah, yeah. This is <laughs> well, and it's funny because like it is now actually closer to what it was originally based off of, which was an amp that came out in '87. Uh, I kind of sort of sort of tightly and yet also loosely based it off of that amp tightly as in like i followed the general locations of where parts go but loosely uh, as in topography yeah right but but loosely as in like i designed all the boards for it and i used an entirely different wiring scheme and i added a whole bunch of upgrades and did a whole bunch of other stuff to it but um back in episode 155 we talked about a new footprint for a uh, a coax connection, a coax PCB connection that I've been wanting to try for and, a long. And you time. say 155, but I remember you like the second or third week at Macrofab, you had this idea. Yeah, yeah, and I, it just I, took you 155 episodes to actually try it. Well, okay, no, it took me 155 episodes to uh, have an excuse to try it. Uh, and the excuse was I looked at this amp and I was like, I could use that footprint to do something new. I, yeah, no, and looking back now, I, I designed this in, or rebuilt an entire amp around a footprint in a PCB program. <laughs> <laughs> when, and and, and oh, so the magic about, around that is, is I've always wanted to try building an amp where either 100% or nearly 100% of every wire was coax shielded. Because uh, I wanted to see like, Okay, all the extra effort of every wire now having a shield that you have to ground or do something with, does that make a difference? And the answer is, yeah, 100%. It absolutely does make a difference. Uh, so I actually got the data sheet for this coax that I used throughout the amp and, and found that it has uh, about 18 picofarads of capacitance per foot. Um, and that's... Most of the runs of all the signals in here are three inches or less. So we're probably looking at, you know, an average of an extra four or five picofarads for any given run. That's enough that it's not going to have much or if any of an impact on the actual sound of the amplifier. But is it going to have an impact on crosstalk and lower noise and things? Because on these kind of amps, like you have a huge chassis and you're passing giant gains around. Like the, the cumulative gain of this amp is uh 72 to 73 db which is over 4000 times gain you know so it takes 340 microvolts worth of input to get a distorted output on the out- outside like you breathe on it and it's distorted you know like it has so much gain and these things are like notorious for noise and oscillation and feedback and squeal and all that jazz so i wanted to see like okay if i'm if i design my my boards do it my way with my footprint. Can we get difference? And the answer is yeah, 100%. Uh, like I said, this is the third time I've built it and it's never sounded like this. Uh, so it's really interesting. And this is a lot quieter. There's n- very little hum and buzz. I mean, it still exists because uh, it's pretty much impossible. I mean, you said it's got, you can say it's got 4,000 times gain. Right, right. Yeah. 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 You have to yeah, cut you're gonna have slack in, somewhere. Yeah. Right, it's gonna pick up vibrations on the input, just right. from like from the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so you know, uh, y- y- you live with it. But 
at the volumes that it has noticeable gains, those are also the volumes that make you go deaf. So it's one of those things where, like, okay, yeah, sure, it has noticeable gain, but the signal-to-noise ratio is through the freaking roof. Uh, so, yeah, the uh, the footprint works. I'm super happy with it, and I'd like to potentially use it in the future. It's not something I'd ever use in, like, a professional setting because it's just, I mean, it's really, like, handcrafted kind of thing. Like, you have to do it in a way. Artisan. It doesn't make sense to do it in a pr production sense, but on a single one-off amp like this, oh, yeah, it's awesome, man. So, super happy with that. That came out well. Ar Artisan Crafted Amplifiers by Stephen Craig. <laughs> yeah. Wankifiers. Yeah. I, I, I came up with a term today. It was uh, MAGA, which is uh, make amps. No, make analog great amps. So that's that's. <laughs> I, I need to start wearing a red hat that says MAGA, right? <laughs> you got to be careful with that one now. Yeah, got to be real careful with that. <laughs> All right. Cool. On to the RFO. RFO. So I got a got a cool topic today that um, I I saw it pop up on Hackaday. It's called Hack My House, UL certifications and turning the lights on with an ESP eighty two sixty six. So there's some there's some interesting stuff behind this article, and I I I, I was really interested uh, in reading through it because I've had this same question before, where it's like, okay, so we've got all this really cool IoT stuff where like I can unlock my door from my work if. I wanted to, or I could, I don't know, I could turn on my pool cleaning robot if I had a pool from work, you know, like that kind of stuff. But, but at the same <laughs> no, time, I, like, so I, I, you, you came up with two examples that are like completely worthless. <laughs> I do have an IOT socket. Yeah. With my garage air conditioner plugged into it. Ah. And so, so if I'm at work and I'm like, hey, I'm and I'm like, hey, I want to go home and work on my wagon, but it's a hundred fucking degrees outside. <laughs> I'm I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend. So I, I know I'm going to do that. So I don't have anything planned or whatever. I can go on my phone and click turn on AC. Yeah, and it will turn on my wall unit in the garage. And by the time I get home, it's like 74 degrees in my garage. Nice. So there is one application that. Because I don't want it on timer because not every day I'm going to come home and work it there. Right. Out there. Right. So you I want to make that decision about two hours before I get home. Yeah. Because we all know it's going to take two hours to drop in uh, in Houston from. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, it's like a 30 degree difference. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. For sure. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, that that brings up an interesting question. Your, your outlet or your socket, is it UL certified? I do don't know. Keep talking. I'm actually going to grab it. Okay, he's he's going to go. I'll, I'll, yeah, he's he's actually just in the room right next to his garage. So, so the UL certification, when it comes to IoT kind of stuff, uh, what what's interesting about it is like if you know we have all these IoT devices that do all this magical stuff, but as soon as we start connecting them to the mains grids, well, you're no longer playing with just your IoT little widget. You're starting to play with some other stuff that usually requires some kind of certification. And it's the the issue comes up with what if you install something and burn down your house or your garage and it did not have the UL certification, what happens? Uh, what you know, are you, yeah, are you liable SOL? for it? Are you SOL? What is your insurance company going to say with that? Is your insurance company even going to care? And so this article kind of talks about that a little bit and brings up some some good points. But uh, as I was reading it, I remembered uh, my buddy Roz, 
who was our guest on the last Star Wars episode that we did, he actually works for an insurance company. So I hit him up and, and asked him questions on this with the, the UL certification and what that would mean for a homeowner's policy. And he actually pulled up. Basically the people who would pay you if your house burned down. Right, right. So he, he researched it and he pulled up uh, their standard homeowner's policy and dug through it. And what was really interesting, you know, I'm not going to give away the, the name of the insurance company, but I, I assume in general they're all fairly similar. What's interesting is is in the, his situation, there was no clause that said that they could deny coverage for appliances that did not have a UL certification. In fact, there wasn't any clauses about uh, d- devices plugged into mains requiring the mark of the beast. Any kind of certification. Right, right. UL or uh, ETL or any of so those. So this... this- socket thing yeah it does have a it's the other scumbag company etl etl yeah 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 yes. ave calls it the mark of the beast <laughs> yes the mark of the beast because he thinks it's inferior but it's the same thing it's the same thing they take your money and they put a sticker on your on your product like that's yes. yeah i I've I've, actually got I've fcc used as well but the thing is it doesn't have the f because it's it's wi-fi yeah it doesn't have the fcc id on the outside like it should uh, is it required in that? I guess it. No, actually, yeah, I don't course. know because actually my phone doesn't have it on the outside either. Uh, but but if okay, so does your phone have a removable back? Nope, it does not. Hmm. Okay, this is a Google Pixel too, and doesn't have the FCC. I remember one of my phones had that on the back. The, yeah, the ID. Um, but maybe that's not actually required. Maybe it's not. I'm I'm pulling the case off of my phone right now. I have a Galaxy S9. And on the back, I see the don't throw it in the trash can symbol and the CE, but no FCC. Actually, what's funny is mine says I have this. I have the G logo for Google. Yeah. And then it has just a C. And then GTA. I guess that's Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) Grand Theft Auto Google. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, uh, yeah, okay, so ba- back to the insurance stuff. Uh, so my, my buddy looked through the homeowner policy and, and basically said, yeah, like if you plug in an appliance and your house burns down because of that appliance, it's not guaranteed to be your fault uh, or it's not, like, inherently your fault. In other words, like, if you go to Amazon and you buy some garbage, whatever, it the consumer is not required to inspect validate the product exactly the consumer is not not even supposed to necessarily have knowledge of that that's more well i'm not gonna go down that route but but regardless uh so so that would not be on them now the the question is okay great so if i buy it from someone else and it doesn't have the, the the mark on it that's one thing but what if i build a little circuit and i shove it in a j box and put it in the wall and I burned down my house. Now we're starting to get into some different territory there. And what it comes down to is maybe is what he came down with. So what's interesting is it's not like a guaranteed inherent. Yes. Like if, if the insurance company found out that I made a circuit that burns out like this amp right here, if, if, if my amp or your, just like caught fire or your 5,000 or five kilowatt, you know, brewery system. Hey, Hey, 10 kilowatt, 10 kilowatts. Yeah, if 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 that burned down my house, that doesn't inherently mean that I would be denied coverage. 
what it comes down to is the legal term negligence, which I'm not even going to pretend to know how to interpret that. However, uh, what it, what it really comes down to is the insurance company proving negligence. Like, was there negligence on your behalf or did you just pick, pull up an instructables thing and follow it to the T and, and say, well, okay, I followed what, what was given to me online. So, so there's a bunch of questions that you would very likely be asked. Like, what do you do? Are you aware of electrical code? Are you a electrical engineer? Like these, like, yeah. Do you use, I'm an engineer as a valid defense (laughs) (laughs) on your device, burning your house down? Yeah. Right. Maybe not actually, because that means you're a bad engineer. I, I don't know. Or an inquisitive mind, one or the other, right? Yeah. Will this burn down my house? Let's find out. <laughs> find out, yeah. I'm, yeah. I was just testing the scientific theory. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, test, uh, test complete. Yes. Uh, <laughs> test complete. <laughs> Hypothesis false. False. <laughs> yeah, so, so I guess the takeaway with all of this, um, and, they, and I, I was kind of surprised. I think insurance companies want to make sure you didn't do it on purpose. Yeah, well, they don't. They don't want you committing arson, right? Yeah, on your own property. Right. I'm pretty sure is that they would deny you ar- coverage. Is that still considered arson? Uh, to your own. I yeah, I don't know legally. I I'm not going to pretend to know that. Hmm. I mean, if you burn down your, I house, think that's just insurance fraud at that point. I think you burning down your house is called you burning down your house. Like that's just yeah. sort of how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. Maybe arson means that you're doing it maliciously to not your own property. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it would just be insurance just fraud. fraud. They're making sure you're not committing insurance fraud is what they're yeah, worried about. Yeah. Well, okay. So all said and done, like I didn't know that, and I was a little bit surprised that you know if you I, I th- always thought that if you plugged in something into the wall that doesn't have the UL cert, then you are taking a risk, and and you sort of are, but you're not taking as much of a risk as I thought you would. Yeah. So all those all those hackaday comments are wrong. Oh, I haven't looked at them. They oh, they're like, like, oh, if you plug in a device that's not UL certified, you're going to you know, void your insurance policy. You know, okay, so actually, uh, coming up here soon, I have um, scheduled, because we, we bought some new equipment at work, and um, in order to get the city of Denver to sign off on our electrical permit, we have to get Intertech to come out and do an inspection of the installation, especially oh, because yeah. this is European um, equipment. So we have a 240 to 400 volt three-phase transformer. So It drives got, on the left side of the road? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so I, I have the inspector come in, in a week or two. I'm going to ask him about that also. Like if it doesn't have, you know, the mark of the beast and, and, and we plug it into the wall, like what kind of risk are we taking? I mean, obviously I'm willing to take a lot of risk (laughs) with the stuff that I have here, but, uh, but just like a general consumer, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Be interesting. Yeah. Cool. So I found another topic on Hackaday that I thought uh, was a really cool thing to talk about, and it's called uh, Component Shelf Life, How to Use All That Old Junk, uh, which is basically... Yeah, we have lots of old junk. Yeah, well, and that's uh, it kind of hits home a little bit. But um, it's really a question of how old is too old for a component, and how do you know that, and how do you deal appropriately with it? So Macrofab goes through components pretty damn fast so like you you don't have lots of old components right 
Yeah, we have n- like no old components. Yeah, like your co- <laughs> your component life is measured in days. Yeah, week at most. Right, right. So you're yeah, right. It's not. I mean, maybe your house parts you have stock of house parts, but those are all things that are known to be acceptable. Good for long. a long time. Yeah. Yeah, right. Like resistors and stuff like that. Yeah. So we we always check the data sheets for that, and like the main thing with component lives is when you check data sheets, it is. They mainly care about how, how you're storing them. Are you storing them in a, you know, cool, dry place? Are they in vacuum bags? Are they ESD protected? All that good stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well, and yeah, so we make moisture yeah, So we make sure we we store parts correctly. Um, the problem you run into is like surplus stores. <laughs> so like when you go to a surplus store and I, I've been to a surplus store here in Houston and picked up like electrolytic capacitor out and read the date code and it was 30 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like, almost as old as you are. Yeah, a part that's almost as old as I am and it's for sale and it's not any cheaper than buying one on Mauser. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, and that's, that's an interesting, you know, trap because like if you go to a surplus store to buy something that you want to be reliable, you have no guarantees. No. You know, it's like plugging a non-UL mark thing into the wall, right? Yeah, <laughs> except it's into your PCB. Right, right, right. Uh, so, okay, so what are components to avoid if you're if you're looking for a long life, like in terms of like buying at a surplus store? To avoid electrolytic capacitors, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I would say look at like leads of parts. And see how badly oxidized they are. The good thing with like through hole parts is there's usually enough like meat there you can like, you know, file off any ex- uh, oxidization off like leads and stuff. But surface mount parts, um, the good thing with surface mount parts is usually the reel they come on. At least if you can find the reel. So like if you're doing cut tape, they'll have a date code. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, each manufacturer is different on what they recommend. So you have to look up like how long this X part is okay being exposed to air. Mm. Uh, If you're hand soldering like SMT parts, it's probably fine to just like pull them off the tape and, you know, solder them on. But if you're going to reflow them, especially because a lot of times where I go to surplus stores, they just have the reels just like in a cabinet. Yeah. And so it's like, okay, you can't reflow those because they'll probably explode like popcorn. (laughs) All the moisture, especially here in Houston. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're just sponges. (laughs) Yes. So and, yeah, uh, the uh, yeah. I, I you know the old resistors. I guess they're not even really that old, but like metal film resistors that have that like ceramic outside on them. Those things last forever. Uh, I mean, those things are really like and the concrete resist. I call them concrete. The you know the the white the, stone looking resistors. Yeah, they got a ceramic goop on the outside. Those no wire round resistor those last forever. Yeah. Old old inductors like uh, core wound inductors and things like those will last a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Um, some film caps do have some life to them because they are uh, moisture sensitive. I guess it's it's worth like look at how the component is constructed and um, packaged. Like if it if it's a dipped kind of thing then maybe maybe not but if it's got like a ceramic outside then you're probably fine you know mm-hmm. so unless you reflow it they could be bad because yeah. ceramics are really good at absorbing moisture sure yeah then you can get cracking and things like that yeah 
especially during reflow. But otherwise, they're fine. Um, yeah. But this reminds me of um, buying parts off third party uh, from third party sources, like for the OpenMV cameras from way back in the day. Yeah, that's old. This school. is like four years ago, right? Something like that. Yeah. And um, so the the customer they they ordered uh, their camera sensors third party because we couldn't find them at all from a, a authorized dealer at all. Right. And actually the the um, the OEM manufacturer for the part said that these were end of life like three or four years before we were doing this project for them. Oh, yeah. When we and were asking the for them, like they were like there wasn't even a trace of them in their factory. Yeah. And so our, our customer found these parts and we're like, okay, we'll use them because you're supplying them. But, you know, no warranty. And they just would not reflow. And they would just pop off the board. And these are yeah, like image yeah. sensors that are sort of BGAs, basically. Yeah. And what we found out was the balls on all of them had oxidized. So they were, these sensors were either, they could have been either old stocks or like or, or old stock and removed off of old boards. But since they were really consistent, we think they were just like poorly stored yeah. for five or six years or however long they've been, uh, you know, out of stock for. And so all the, 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 the balls were just all oxidized. Right. And I actually, Hackaday did an article about this story way back then. And the comments were amazing, like how to get rid of the oxidization. And so I, the one that sticks out was someone told us to like sand the balls with sandpaper. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, we got to take like a micron layer off of these balls and we're going to do it with sandpaper for like the entire production run. Right, right, yeah. And basically what we ended up doing was we sent, the, we, it was actually Steven, Steven reballed like 20 yep. in shop and they all worked and then we shipped them off and got them professionally reballed and then they all worked. Yeah. But man, that was, oh, trial and just, it's like going down like the eighth level of hell or something like that for <laughs> <Also>, manufacturing. <laughs> you know, if you don't have the right equipment to reball BGAs, even even the BGAs that have a smaller number of pins, it's actually it's 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 sort of easy, but not at all. Uh, like the 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 actual actions you take with your hands, the physical motions is is easy, but getting everything to just be perfect is kind of hard. You know, it's it's basically easy, and you just have to get lucky. Yeah, sort of. Yeah, because yeah. because I, 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 I did it. I did it with like a little tray, and like no machinery or anything like that. It was like like solder wick and a and yeah. a little laser cut piece of something i don't even remember it might have been stainless or something like that was it stainless yeah it was one was stainless and one was mylar yeah okay yeah Yeah, because you had to you you we built a little jig to hold the part right i think we 3d printed that and then you wicked you wicked the balls off yeah and then you put the stencil down and it was i think it was a stainless stencil and you you put new paste down yeah and then you had a bigger stencil that was mylar that you would basically shake balls over yeah. And they would fall into the holes and then you would shake the rest of the balls off into the tray and then lift the mylar off perfectly yeah. so none of the balls could move. <laughs> right. And then you had reballed your BGA. Right. Right. And then yeah. you had to carefully put that back on a new board and reflow that board and pray to 
God that it worked. <laughs> and it worked. You had 100% on your run, you had 100% yield. I was right. impressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a pain in the ass. That was an absolute yeah. pain. And then we're like, oh, Steven just did 20. He can do the next thousand of them, right? There was 1,500. That was what yeah. it was 1,500, and we had to keep telling the customer, it's like, yeah, our yield is like 1%. Uh, you know, like, this is not going to work, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we got it done. Yeah, yeah, it all it all worked out in the end. But yeah, um, no, that's a, that's a, another story from the depths of the uh, the gray market. Like, you the thing is, you don't know. Okay, so if the if the manufacturer of the part themselves are like, I have no clue where these have been. They could have sat outside in some hot warehouse, you know, open warehouse in some country somewhere. You know, yeah, who knows? In you the know? rain. Yeah, you have no idea. Walking up the snow both ways to school. Yeah, that's just. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. don't don't buy stuff from the gray market. What's the point? There's no point. Don't design uh, a product that needs something from the gray market. That was the problem. Is is they were using an outdated sensor. Well, okay. And then for their next iteration, they upgraded to a new sensor. And guess what? We had like almost 100 percent yield. Okay, so. so here was the argument, and I can see it, but it, I think a lesson was learned here. That particular sensor that we had to reball had JPEG compression built into the sensor. Correct. And uh, they, they didn't want to move to another one because it did not. Uh, they discontinued the JPEG compression. That's why they were so adamant about that, and they wanted that in this particular revision. So Yes, that was the reason why. Yep. But... Their next product, they use a modern sensor that the company made, and they had the compression. So right, yeah, they they just implemented it elsewhere. So okay, yeah. whatever. Cool. Yeah. So our next topic <coughs> is EU bans lead solder for real this time. And so back in like oh five or oh six, uh, the EU came up with Rojas, much to the demise of electronic products everywhere. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit of a rant on Rojas do it now do it okay so Rojas it means good things get lead out of the environment lead's bad you know lead's bad for people lead's bad for the environment the problem with Rojas was uh, how much how lead gets into the environment is the majority of it gets in through car batteries being tossed into landfills or on wherever car batteries go instead of being recycled, right? Mm-hmm. Rojas exempts car batteries. <laughs> so you got like 80% of where your lead comes from into the environment. Yeah. It's not even being touched. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm and, and re- Rojas, re- is, Rojas is more than just lead. I think there's what, 13? The, yeah. Yeah. It's got some heavy metals, but the big thing was lead. And so that's my biggest thing is like, okay, you could have pushed if this was actually going to be good for the environment. You would have pushed car manufacturers in that industry to change off of lead acid batteries to change to something new or something different, but they didn't. So it's, I hate getting political, but it was really a feel good political wank. Okay, Rojas. so so I'm actually I'm so I'm on RojasGuide.com right now and on the FAQ yeah. page and there is a question: Does Rojas apply to batteries? And like immediately under it, she goes, "No." And 
<laughs> although although it gives it gives some uh, some qualifications here. It says all batteries, regardless of type or application, are covered under the EU battery directive, which there was one that came out in 2006 and another one that came out in 2013 that uh, basically restricts certain uh, heavy metals, lead, mercury, and cadmium. Um, yeah. But but still, yeah, no, you're right. Like Rojas, like yes, almost guaranteed. Rojas was driven by lead, and uh, and it's not attacking one of the main sources. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't It wasn't addressing the big elephant in the room. It was attacking the mouses. Right. Right. So, regardless, um, the thing is, hobbyists and commercial users could still buy lead for yeah. soldering after that. Um, they just couldn't be in consumer products. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. But as of March 2018, the EU reclassified lead as being toxic to reproduction. And because of that designation, it can never be sold to the general public. Mm. And so you can only be a commercial user. And that went into effect February 28th of this year. And so I, there's a Reddit thread on the electronic subreddit of a guy went to his local electronic store slash surplus store and they were completely out of leaded solder. Hmm. So um, like I can still go to Home Depot or to EPO, which is a local surplus uh, store here in Houston, and I can still buy leaded solder. I can still buy it online. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I You can buy it on Mauser. Yeah. So EU, they first banned memes, and now they're banning our leaded solder. <laughs> I, I feel that there should be a meme about banning leaded solder. Well, we can make one, but they just can't view it. Yeah, they can't. They're not. Uh, when does that go in effect? That's Article. Well, it was Article 13, and then they um, they changed it, and now it's Article 17? Or uh, something like that. Um, I don't know. It's not actually about memes. It's about copyright. <laughs> but the the best meme is it's about memes. Yeah, yeah, which is <laughs> which is pretty great. Yeah. Um. So again, my twenty pounds of vintage Kester forty sixty or sixty forty leaded solder just keeps going up in price. Yeah. Maybe I can sell it in the black market in the EU. Sell it in like six inch hey, strips. We already said. Oh, I mean, black market. It's got to be metric. What's six inches in metric? Like twelve or I'm thirteen gonna, I, centimeters. I only use freedom like units. I, I live in America, so sorry. It's man. like fourteen centimeters, something like that. Maybe fifteen. <laughs> Actually, I'm doing I'm doing a hundred percent of everything in in metric now. Uh, we we basically. Oh, on we, your board designs. Uh, so I do I do my so on board designs I do my. Because most parts are in metric now, like yeah. ICs. Yeah. So I do, I do my placements, like where I put my parts. I do that in metric, mm-hmm. and then, and I try to make it like I put my parts in placements of like what the pitch widths are. So it's like point one millimeter, a placement. Yeah. So that way, when I route, that it all works. So then I do my fan out in metric, and then I switch to imperial for everything else. <laughs> and especially if it's connectors, I do Imperial for connectors, like their locations. Oh, okay. Because yeah. so if you have to do fixturing or anything like that, metric uh, Imperial is going to be a lot better for like people building stuff in America to handle. Oh, for sure. So, okay, here's the thing. 
I, I realized a little while ago that um, I uh, the only thing I was using Imperial for was my board outline. Like my actual board size, <laughs> because I had a good feel for that. Everything else I did metric because every data sheet was in metric. Everything yep. like, and I, I was like, this is so dumb. Why am I doing all these conversions when I could just do one conversion or just kind of learn gut feel for metric? So I do metric everything. However, the only thing I don't do metric is tolerancing now because I don't have a good feel for like I can t I have an understanding of what three thousandths of an inch is or two thousandths, but like two thousandths of an inch in metric is like I have no clue. Like like it's not that I don't have a clue. It's just like I don't have like a an understanding or a gut feel for that. Yeah, he, Parker's. I can tell he's googling it right now. <laughs> it's actually point oh five millimeters. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, so like, but the, but if someone were to come over to me and be like, "Is 0.05 millimeters good enough to over or undersize this hole?" I'd be like, "I have no freaking clue." And if they said Actually, like two or three thousand, because sure. it's the metric system, you shouldn't be using decimals. Oh, so it should be no, don't so get into that. Two group. mil should be fifty thousand eight hundred nanometers. Oh God, yeah, no, yeah, we're getting that rant. Yeah, I'm not touching that. I'm not touching. How that many? Turd. European listeners are we going to lose on this episode? Hey, they should be gaining because we're 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 admitting that the metric system is uh, superior in almost every way other than tolerancing. Like <laughs> <laughs> <Under> board outlines. <laughs> no, no, it's just whatever you're used to. Now, well, I mean that's why I do I do the I do the fan uh, the reason why I place electrical components on metric is so that fan outs work well. Yeah. In metric and then components and stuff that interface with the outside world most of my boards are in are in you know america they don't go my pinball machines don't go international and so it's like okay you want connectors that are you know metrically or imperially spaced so you can have fixtures that work with it and yeah imperially spaced that just sounds like it's just, it's got some gravitas to it you know it's like Metri watching... metrically spaced doesn't no nah, it just doesn't have as much ring and well, we can even go deeper. It's imperially spaced like in the old EU in Star oh. Wars. Oh, yeah. There we go. But no <laughs> lead, right? No, in the old EU, you can have lead. Oh, okay. Well, but in America, we can have leaded spacing right now. <laughs> we could still have leaded spacing. <laughs> you know, actually, the crazy thing, this is a way tangent before nice. we finish this podcast, Yeah, is it's interesting to look at leaded gasoline and violent crimes. Have you ever looked at this before? That sounds like uh, something that you would see on Freakonomics. It, actually, I think it might have been a Freakonomics. Where, so lead in small doses causes people to be more agitated and okay. aggressive. Okay? And so when we, basically the EPA, I think it was the EPA, banned leaded gasoline to go unleaded, there is a sharp drop and like the year that follows in aggression, like in violent crimes, like noticeable drop. It's a huge noticeable. Like it's actually like one of the greatest like changes in violent crime is from changing <laughs> off lead gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a correlation without causation uh, kind of thing, but but it's such a steep change, and we know lead causes aggression. Sure. So yeah, that's an eyebrow raiser. For yeah. sure. And the other big one that's coming up is changing like street lamps and like public space lighting to blue lighting from yellow sodium lights. 
Oh, okay, yeah. Because they used sodium lights because they were really efficient at making a lot of light right. with one bulb. But the problem is they're usually, you know, that yellow tinge. Right. Slightly yellow, reddish tinge. Whereas when that actually causes more aggression in humans as well, whereas blue lighting does not. It causes a more passive effect. And so whenever you go to, like, if you look at, like, night-lidded bus stations and stuff, yeah, modern ones are blue, like, LED cool they're, lit. They're cool. This is a cool cool bus station. So it calms down your aggression. Huh. Yeah, okay. uh, Get this. Another tangent. Uh, This, I was, I was dating a girl back in college who lived actually in um, Baltimore. And uh, she lived in a not so great neighborhood in Baltimore. And I I went and hung out with her once. Isn't that the entirety, entire place of Baltimore? Hey, I'm not going to offend the entire city of Baltimore here. Their city is great. <laughs> no, no. So, so get this. Um, at that time, this was 2008 or nine. Um, Baltimore had some interesting, I don't know, ideas on, on handling crime. And one of the things that they, they did was they set up on the street lamps, these blue blinking lights at, at intersections that had high crime. Uh, and so like if there was a murder or if there was something that happened there, which that was a fairly common thing uh they they put a blue light there in in, a, in an effort to like kind of like ward it off and say hey there was crime at this location what it ended up just becoming were crime beacons where people would be like yeah just meet under the blue light like it ended up <laughs> attracting tons of crime to it's it it's like well, that's it where like, the fight club goes yeah it was a horribly failed project uh, like you know initiative that they tried it was it was actually kind of funny <laughs> that's interesting yeah there you go. Blue lights and Unfortunate, but that is a very interesting project. Yeah. Maybe they have uh, still do leaded gas there. Who knows? Yeah. Or they just eat leaded circuit boards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe we just need to go the way of the EU and just get rid of it all, right? I mean, we build... I, I don't know of anyone that builds products using leaded you know, solder unless you absolutely need it like NASA or... Some aerospace stuff. You know, the the last place that I had even heard that still you'd use lead solder um, told me last year that they're switching over. And uh, they, they did um, safety products and things like that. But they were like, yeah, we're just we're just it's easier to get Rojas stuff now. So, like, it's mm-hmm. actually harder to find a CM that does lead. Yeah, we actually in our entire partner network, we have one one CM one partner that will do leaded. Yeah. They basically have an entire facility that all it does is lead. Right. And it's because the moment you put it in itself. the same building, you're going to have cross contamination. Yeah. It's game over. It's like uh, here's a tangent for you. It's like sour beers. If you, if you, if you ferment sour beers in the same building as you do like standard beers, your standard beers will become sour just because that lactobacillus yeast. You mean it's going to get better, right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I like sours, but <laughs> yeah, so you can't, you know, no cross-contamination. Yep. So before we're getting on to another tangent, let's end this podcast. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> All right, so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. And don't eat lead, kids. Don't eat the lead chips.
Thank you, yes, you are a listener for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, or lead, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. And if you're from the EU, we'll be posting some really cool pictures of leaded solder reels. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.